<coughs> As you can see on the screen this morning, we'll pick up at verse 11 of chapter 19, and we'll follow this through to verse 27. This passage picks up right after Jesus' words to Zacchaeus, which we finished by looking at last week. Luke 19, and I'll read from verse 11 to verse 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is God's word. Often Jesus' parables are only a few lines long, and often they only make one point. But this is one of his longer and more complex parables. And verse 11 tells us why Jesus tells this particular story. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The first line of verse 11 points us back to the passage we looked at last week. We ended last week with Jesus in Zacchaeus' house, saying, today salvation has come to this house. Now, to our ears, That's an unremarkable thing for Jesus to say. Zacchaeus has received salvation. 
But to the Jews listening to Jesus, when they heard Jesus say, today salvation has come, they would have started thinking on a much wider, grander scale. They were waiting for salvation. And what they expected was that God's anointed one would defeat Israel's enemies and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And then the Jewish people would share in the rule of God's anointed one. That's what came to the minds of Jesus' audience when he said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come. They know too that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. At this point, they're in Jericho. So Jerusalem is just 18 miles away. The crowd assume Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem and set up his reign at once. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And to correct their thinking, he tells the story that we've just read. This story is here in part to explain how Jesus is going to become king. It's here for other reasons too, as we'll see. But in part, it's to correct wrong thinking about Jesus becoming king. So the man of noble birth in this story represents Jesus. Look at verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. The opening verses are setting the scene for what follows. So it's important for us to picture the scene that Jesus is setting for us. In verse 12, he's describing something that regularly happened at that time. Most of the known world was ruled by the Romans. But they often ruled through local kings. The candidate for one of those local kingships would travel to Rome, and there he would be appointed king by Caesar or by the Senate. Then he would return home to rule with Rome's authority. This had already happened several times in Israel. About 40 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great had made the trip to Rome, and he had come back crowned as king of Israel. Then when Herod died, shortly after Jesus' birth, his son Archelaus had gone to Rome seeking to be crowned king. We'll come back to Archelaus in a few moments, but here the point is, Jesus is describing a situation people understood. If someone was going to reign as king, they first of all had to go away and receive the authority to reign as king. That's what the nobleman in this story does, and it's what Jesus is going to do. We already know Jesus has a royal heritage. The early chapters of Luke have traced his roots right back to King David. In fact, just a few verses back in chapter 18, verse 39, we've been reminded that Jesus is the son of David. Even more significant than that, at Jesus' baptism, God the Father said, you are my son. So as readers of Luke's gospel, we already know Jesus is a man of noble birth. But Jesus wants the crowd to know that before he takes his throne to reign, he has to go away. But not to Rome, not to receive Caesar's approval. 
For Jesus, going away is going to mean dying on a cross, then being resurrected, and then ascending to heaven. That's the journey that will lead to Jesus being crowned as king. And of course, from our position in history, that journey has already been taken by Jesus. His return will be what we refer to as his second coming. That's an event still in the future, today even. So in Jesus' story, the man of noble birth is going away to be appointed king. Look at verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. The NIV has a footnote telling us a mina was about three months' wages. But the significant point is that each servant receives exactly the same. Ten servants, one mina each. It's their master's money. They're to put the money to work for the master. And they're to put it to work until he comes back. Notice the master does not mention results. He doesn't tell them they have to produce a certain level of profit. The instruction is simply, put this money to work until I come back. They're to serve their master faithfully. They're to work for his gain while he's absent. That much is clear and straightforward. But there's a catch. Verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. As the man of noble birth leaves to be appointed king, the people he's going to be ruling over try to block his appointment. They reject his claim to the throne. And they do what they can to keep him from the throne. And again, Jesus is painting a picture that would have been familiar to his audience. A few moments ago I mentioned Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great. The Jews hated Archelaus. They didn't want him ruling over them. So when his father died and he went to Rome to be appointed king, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 men to Rome. That delegation arrived and they told Caesar Augustus, we don't want this man to be our king. And Caesar, in part, gave in to their request. He allowed Archelaus to rule over certain areas of Israel, but he stopped short of giving him the title king. And in fact, Archelaus never received the title king of Israel. Maybe you can see how this mention of the delegation in the story adds a whole new factor to the scene that's being set for us. For these servants in the story, their master is going away to receive a crown. They're to serve him faithfully in his absence. But now we can see that serving him faithfully is going to require great courage, great trust. Those around them hate the master they're serving. Those around them oppose the man of noble birth. And so his servants can be certain they will also oppose those who live as his loyal servants. 
These servants are being asked to serve faithfully in a hostile environment. What's the temptation going to be? The temptation is going to be to keep their heads down, to keep a low profile, to hedge their bets, not to identify openly with their absent master. And beyond that, the servants may wonder if he's ever coming back to reign at all. These servants have been given a great challenge. They have been commissioned and equipped to serve an absent, opposed master. That's the picture Jesus has painted for us in verses 11 to 14. And maybe we can begin to see how this picture applies to our situation. We too have been commissioned and equipped to serve an absent, opposed master. Now, before we think about the commissioned and equipped bit, I need to clarify what I mean by absent. Because in one sense, Jesus is certainly not absent. He is powerfully active in the world through his Spirit. Before he returned to heaven, he promised not to leave his people alone. He would send his Spirit to live among them. And sure enough, the arrival of the Spirit is recorded for us in the book of Acts. After Jesus had already been raised and had returned to heaven, his spirit came to be with his people. So in that sense, Jesus is not absent. But there is another sense in which he is absent. He's not physically with us. We're not physically gathered around his throne. His enemies are still active. We know that he has been crowned king. We know that all authority has been given to him. Everything is subject to him. And yet the book of Hebrews says, at present we do not see everything subject to him. He's a little bit like an ancient king on his way back from Rome. He has been crowned. The kingdom is his. But he has not yet arrived home to claim his kingdom. In that sense, we have a master who is absent and opposed. We live in a culture that doesn't want Jesus for its king. The great temptation we face is to keep a low profile. Not to identify ourselves too openly with Jesus. We know that it might get us into trouble in small or large ways. We heard about some of that on Thursday when the Christian Institute were here. And yet, in spite of the hostility around us, Jesus has commissioned us and he has equipped us to serve him. He has given us something and told us, put this to work until I come back. So we have to ask, what has he given us? What is it we're to put to work until he comes back? The servants in the story are given money to invest. What have we been given to invest? I think it's significant that the servants were all given the same thing. The New Testament tells us we all have different gifts and abilities. But the mina represents something we've all been given equally. So I don't think the mina represents our gifts and abilities. They're different for each one of us. I think the mina given equally to all the servants 
represents the good news about Jesus. Or we could call it the message of the kingdom of God, or the gospel, or God's word. Those are all, at heart, different ways of talking about the same thing. The good news about Jesus is the treasure that we have all been given. Our calling is to put that treasure to work. And we're to put it to work using the different abilities, opportunities, and resources that we all have. The same treasure put to work for God's profit according to our own unique abilities, opportunities, and resources. That's the picture. God has made us all different, and we're different by design. Each of us is to find ways that we can put the good news to work until Jesus comes back. I was speaking to a pastor during the week, and he was saying how unhelpful it can be when as Christians we put a big focus on the gift of evangelism. And we can all think of gifted evangelists, people like Roger Carswell, people who seem to be able to talk to anyone in any situation and do it successfully. And we need to thank God for people who can do that. Or we might think of gifted preachers like Paul Mallard, who was here a couple of weeks ago. Men who can open up God's Word so clearly. We thank God for people who can do that. The danger is that the rest of us think that we are not able to put the good news to work. But our commission goes much wider than just taking someone through a gospel presentation or preaching a sermon. Let me give you a couple of examples. The pastor that I was talking to mentioned some people in his home church. He said they don't have much ability in explaining the Bible, but give them a stack of invitations to a special event and they can fill the room with visitors. They have the ability to give personal invitations. Their lives show an obvious enthusiasm for Jesus. Their lives are obviously affected by Jesus. So people look at those Christians and they want to come and hear about Jesus. They'll accept an invitation from those kind of people. So those inviters are not preaching sermons, but surely they are putting the good news to work. Another example, almost without fail, visitors to this church remark on how blessed we are with our musicians. Isn't that one way of using a God-given ability to put the good news to work? Music can be used powerfully for God's profit. Incidentally, the undertaker at Ken's funeral last Monday told me that he'd never heard singing like it before. And there weren't even that many of us here, relatively speaking. In a small way, that man realized that when people know Jesus, it gives them something to sing about. And it makes a difference at the person's funeral. We could go on. Maybe you're in a bowling club or a walking club. You mix with people who might have no other contact with Christians. Isn't that an opportunity to, in some way, put the good news to work? 
And incidentally, that's an opportunity you can go out and find. Anyone can join a club. I'm not suggesting we go to our clubs and we start handing out tracts. But we can find ways to promote the gospel. Even if it's just inviting someone around for a meal. Inviting them into your life in some way. And then maybe to the occasional special service. We might be in a position to care for those who are sick. We're certainly in a position to welcome visitors when they come to church. To show by our love expressed in action that knowing Jesus makes a difference in our lives. And some of you excel in those particular areas. Another example would be committed intercessory prayer on a regular basis. All of these things are ways of putting the good news to work. Investing the good news for God's profit. It's so much wider than being able to preach or do a gospel presentation. Sooner or later it has to get to a gospel presentation, yes. But if those who aren't gifted to speak and persuade just sit back, then those who can speak and persuade will have no one to speak to. We all have different abilities, opportunities, and resources. We're to use them to work for the master's gain until he comes back. He doesn't call for a certain set of results from us. He just says that we are to be careful to put what he has given us to work. But of course the catch is that it's not easy. The master we're working for is opposed. Even the nicest of people don't want Jesus to rule over them. They want to be the supreme authority in their lives. And that being the case, the temptation for us is to keep our heads down. Not to associate too closely with Jesus. Not to invest the good news he has given us. One writer gives us some insight into this when he describes a visit that he had to teach at a school for pastors in Latvia. While he was there, some interviews were going on. There were interviews for people who wanted to come and study at the pastor's school. The visitor asked the interview panel, what kinds of questions are you asking? And they said, the most important question is, when were you baptized? That seemed a little unusual. Why not first ask, when did you trust Jesus? So he asked why the baptism question was the most important one. And they told him if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, then they risked their lives and they compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, then we have many further questions to ask them. Such as, why didn't you get baptized earlier? Back when it would have cost you. Was it because you didn't want to associate too closely and too publicly with Jesus in a hostile environment? One of the reasons that we don't serve and obey Jesus, surely, is because we wonder if our service is really worth the sacrifice. 
Is it really worth the inconvenience? Is it worth the hassle or the opposition we might get for it? Maybe deep down we have doubts about whether Jesus is actually coming back at all. That will certainly hold us back from investing in the good news. Jesus understands all this. So in the rest of our passage, he gives a glimpse of the future. The master returns as king. Look at verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. So the delegation has failed. The nobleman's enemies have failed to prevent him being made king. And now he's back as king. And he's going to bring everything to account. The application is straightforward. Jesus' enemies sent him to the cross. But they did not prevent him from being made king. And since the cross, his kingship has been opposed. But one day, all that opposition will come to an end. The king will return and everything will be called to account. In the story, the king sends for his servants. He's going to find out what they've done in his absence. Look at verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Verses 16 to 19 tell us that when the king returns, there will be rewards for the faithful. Notice exactly what the servant, the first servant says in verse 16. Your mina has earned ten more. He does not say, my hard work has earned ten more. He has put what the king gave him to work, and what the king gave him has brought results. As we put the good news about Jesus to work, it will bring results. We might not always see them or be aware of them, but when the gospel is put to work, there will be results. In the story, the king commends the first servant not for the results, but for his trustworthiness. That's in verse 17. Because you have been trustworthy. The servant couldn't control the results, but he has been trustworthy. He put what the king had given him to work as the king commanded him. And he's rewarded. Some people don't like this idea of rewards. But it occurs so often in the New Testament, and especially in Jesus' words, that we can't get away from it. We can't explain it away. I can understand why it makes some people uneasy when we talk about rewards. They're worried it will give the impression we're working to earn our salvation. But the New Testament is clear. Salvation is a gift. Received through faith in Jesus and what he has done. However, the New Testament is equally clear that once we have received the gift of salvation, we will 
go to work for the God who has saved us. Our salvation will work itself out in service for our King. And we can see this order very clearly in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. I'll put this on the screen for you. And as I read it, notice in this short passage how salvation comes first, then comes the work for the one who has saved us. Paul says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. True saving faith will show itself in work for the Savior, and there will be rewards for faithful servants. But notice here in our passage what form the rewards take. The master does not say to the first servant, here, have a souped-up pension. He does not say, have a retirement villa by the sea for all your hard work. He says, take charge of ten cities. In other words, faithfulness with what we're given now will be rewarded with greater responsibility in eternity. Eternity is not presented in the Bible as a permanent seat on a big recliner up in the sky. Eternity will be about serving our King. It will be about doing in a greater way what we're called to do here and now. There's a Jewish saying that helps us understand the point here. The reward of duty done is a duty to be done. The reward of duty done is a duty to be done. As Jesus presents it here, we are not serving here on earth in order to earn a bigger mansion in the new heaven and earth. We're serving here for the honor of greater duties and greater responsibilities of service in the new heaven and earth. And if that is not appealing to us, we might want to ask ourselves, am I serving the king for what I hope to get out of him? Or am I serving him because my greatest joy is to serve the king? Because my greatest reward will be the privilege of serving him more. Can we honestly join in the song which says to God, I live to serve your majesty. When the master returns as king, there will be rewards for the faithful. Rewards in the form of greater opportunities to serve him. There will also be Exposure of those so-called servants who do not know, love, or trust the king. Look at verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. In a few words, we, are, we learn a lot 
about this so-called servant. First, we learn that he disobeyed his master. He had been ordered to put the master's treasure to work. Instead, he took it out of circulation completely. He refused even the most minimal effort of walking to the bank and handing it over to get some interest on it. Instead, he covered it up like he was ashamed of it. And in verse 21, he supposedly gives the reason for his behavior. He did it, he says, because he was afraid of the master. The master is a hard man or a severe man. Why does he think the master is severe? Because he takes out what he didn't put in and he reaps what he didn't sow. Now this explanation by the slave does not make sense on any level. And the master points out that it doesn't make any sense. In verse 22, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? In other words, if what you've told me was really true, if you were afraid of me, you would have worked to have profit to give me when I returned. If you really feared me, the very last thing you would have done is disobey me and refuse to make any effort for me at all. The master is exposing this wicked servant. The explanation the servant has given is bogus. The real reason he did nothing is because he has no fear or respect for the master. He refused to work for the master because he thinks the master isn't fair. In reality, his attitude is, why should I serve you for years in this place that's hostile to you? Why should I put up with hatred and opposition for associating with you just so you can come back and claim the profit of my work? Why should I work so you can show up and take out what you didn't put in and reap what you didn't sow? This individual has shown that in reality he's not a servant of the master at all. By definition, a servant serves his master. This individual doesn't serve the king because he doesn't truly know, love, or trust the king. To truly know this king is to love him. To love him is to trust him and to work for his gain. When Jesus returns, there will be men and women like this individual in the story. Men and women who were so-called servants of the king. But they didn't obey him. They didn't work for his gain. They didn't live to serve his majesty. They actually lived and worked for their own gain, to build their own little kingdom. Well, the master's treasure was lying neglected in the corner of their lives. When he returns, the lives of those so-called servants will have produced no gain for the master. 
and they will be left with nothing. Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. If we are correct in seeing the mina as representing the good news about Jesus, then the point here is that when Jesus returns, false servants like this one will receive no place in the new heaven and earth. Not only will their lives show no profit for the king, even the good news about the king will not be for them. They will be lost outside the kingdom. The first two servants show us that true servants of the king will bear fruit. Their lives will produce gain for the king. It's inevitable. No matter how weak and inadequate we might feel, true servants who know, love, and trust the king will be used by the king. The third servant is here as a warning to those who claim to be servants of the king but who are living for their own gain. This servant is here to warn us. The king has commanded you to work for his kingdom. He has given you a treasure, the gospel of salvation. Are you putting that treasure to work? Are you living to serve the growth and spread of the gospel? You might not be gifted to teach or preach, but that's beside the point. Most of us are not gifted in those ways. The question is, are you using the abilities, opportunities, and resources you do have to work for the king's gain? When the king returns, we will all be called to account. The truth will come out. We will either be rewarded or we will be exposed as frauds as wicked men and women who have been posing as servants of the king, but all the while refusing to serve the king. The final verse of our passage describes judgment on those who reject the king. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This verse refers back to those who sent the delegation in verse 14, saying, we don't want this man to be our king. In this story, when the king returns, they receive terrible judgment. And when Jesus returns, the king who was killed so we wouldn't have to be, the one who on the cross took the full, awful weight of God's judgment, and who did it so guilty sinners like us could escape judgment, when this Jesus returns, those who have rejected what he has done for them will have to go through God's judgment themselves. To put it another way, God has provided a way of escape from his just wrath. 
Those who reject his way of escape will have to face his wrath. God is too good to brush evil and sin under the carpet like they don't matter. Evil and sin will be paid for one way or the other. Either through Jesus' suffering on the cross or through our suffering in hell. And that suffering will be eternal. Eternity isn't long enough to pay what we owe. Is this a positive passage or is it a negative one? Is it joyful or sad? It all depends where we stand in relation to Jesus. If we love him, if we want him as our king, then we will obey him. We will do what we can. Not to earn his favor, but to advance his kingdom. If that's the position we're in, then this passage will excite us, surely. We might feel that what we do doesn't amount to much. It might not look very spectacular. But Jesus tells us our service will result in profit for him. And he will reward us. We will have the honor of serving him in greater ways in eternity. That's a wonderful way to think about our lives and our service. Maybe you need this encouragement from God's word today. Keep going. But for some of us, this passage does not come with positive news. It comes with an uncomfortable challenge. Who or what are we really serving? If we're not living and working for God's gain, then we're showing that we neither know him or love him or trust him. And when King Jesus returns, we will be exposed as frauds. No matter about our church attendance or baptism or anything else we're putting our hope in. This passage challenges us to come to Jesus in repentance. To say to him, I do want you as my king. I want to live for your gain. I want to be a true servant, not a false one. Maybe this morning can be a new beginning for you. Maybe this is the time for you to come to Jesus as your savior from sin and also the king that you serve. Maybe for someone else this morning is a time for recommitment. To first of all confess that you haven't been living for Jesus. To ask his forgiveness. And to commit your life to him in a new way today. Please don't just brush this off. If this challenge from God's word is for you, don't ignore it. Ask him to help you follow through on what the challenge is. Our final song maybe will help us to do that. It asks God to make... They'd been through a number of, amount of persecution. He, he'd, uh, sorry, he'd escaped to South Korea. He'd been in North Korea, gone through all sorts of persecution. Then he said this, I'll never forget. He said, we Koreans, we're like nails, he said. Just like nails. The harder you hit us, 
the deeper we go. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. The, the, the closer we are to God, the, the deeper we get into his word, the more we depend on his promises. Sometimes you only realize that God is all you need when God is all you've got. That's why God allows us to be tried. And so in verses 13 to 15, he, he, he says in the context of this, this wonderful deliverance, I will come and praise God in his temple. Time has gone, so let me just flag up the last thing. Verses 16 to 20, he's the God who hears. He's the God who hears. Verse 5 says, come and hear what God has done. Verse 16 is even better. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 5, let me tell you what God has done. Verse 16, but let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Here is the living God, the God who hears the cries of his people. And you could almost hear Hezekiah speaking here, can't you? I, I came to the Lord. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, that's not talking about the, the, the day-to-day sins, I don't think. That's talking about those sins that what the Puritans used to call the darling sins, those sins that we hold on to. We don't want to let them go. And we come to prayer, and God puts his finger on those sins, and we say, no, Lord. Well, in a sense, the moment we pray and God puts his finger on a sin, a relationship, or, or a particular habit, or something that is wrong, and God puts his finger, and the moment we say no to God, the prayer is over, actually, until we deal with it. That's what I think he's talking about here. If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But, verse 16, God has surely...